Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. I want to introduce you to our speaker. We've got the amazing Adam Heather coming to speak to us on the third in our series this morning of Ambition. He's coming to speak to us on Holy Ambition. Adam, if you've heard him before, is an amazing speaker. He's married to Hannah, and he's the COO of 24-7, and he's also, he leads the evening service for um, Emmaus at uh, found, the Founder Studio. Which way is that? That way. Uh, 6.30 this evening, so if you want to hear him again, that's tonight. Um, but Adam is brilliant, so it's uh, with pleasure that I introduce him to you. Aren't those your notes down there, Adam? You step across there. So, Adam Heather, everybody. Thank you, Sammy. How do I get this higher? Well, good morning. Yeah, so as Sammy said, my name is Adam. Uh, yeah, pleasure to be with you this morning. It's always nice to be able to come along to the morning. Me and Hannah obviously spend most of our time on Sundays at the evening service. And so it's exciting to see what's happening here. God is moving. He's doing fun things in both services. So it's always a pleasure to come and be with you. But uh, like Sammy says, today we are continuing our series where we're looking at ambition. So if you're kind of jumping in with us right now, then basically what we're doing is we're looking at every time in the New Testament that Paul uses the phrase ambition in a positive sense, right? So there's a lot of time he talk, kind of talks about selfish ambition in a negative sense, but there's a few times that he uses the word ambition in a positive sense. And so we're doing a little series looking at all those times. And so, so far, we have looked at missional ambition. What does it look like to take the gospel somewhere? And we've looked at gospel ambition. What is the nature of our good news that we want to share? And then today, we are going to be looking at holy ambition. So I spoke to Pete. Obviously, Pete and Bill at Big Church Day Out today. They send their love. Um, but I spoke to Pete, and I said, Pete, is there anything that you want me to share about holy ambition in particular? And his wise words were, he sent me this prayer, okay? Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. So those were Pete's. That's what I had to work with, so... If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to be reading from verse 6. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we're would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. 
whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So, if you're listening keenly, you may have noticed there was, in fact, no word ambition in what I just read. That is purely because of the translation. The actual word here is translated goal. So what Paul says is, we make it our goal. We make it our ambition to please him, our ambition to please God. But what is Paul saying here, right? It's a slightly confusing verse, isn't it? And basically, what Paul is saying is that he has become compelled by a vision of eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And so what Paul is expressing is a deep longing to go and be with God in glory. He's basically saying that everything that we experience now is a vague reflection right? It's a dim viewing, a 2D experience of what is to come. It is at best black and white and at worst painful and sad. Paul is compelled by his eternal destiny, but he knows he has a calling while he is here on earth. He awaits his time in heaven, but he has an ambition before he gets there. And his ambition is beautifully simple. His ambition is is simply to please God. The message puts it really nicely. It says, neither being in the body or out of the body is the main thing. Cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing. And that's what we aim to do, regardless of our conditions. Let's just linger there for a moment. We have the ability to please God. Right? You know, in, in modern thinking, sometimes people talk about a God. Yeah, maybe there's a God, maybe you made things, but he must be far away. He must not really be that interested. But Paul cuts right across that. We, us, have the ability to please God. I mean, do you think about that? Do you think about that when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you go about your day? We have an ability to please God. And Paul has fallen so in love with the beauty and majesty of Jesus, he finds himself in a paradox. Christianity is full of paradoxes. He is literally homesick for the presence of Jesus. He wants to go and be with him in paradise. But while he is here, he has come to the conclusion that his entire purpose of being while in the body, down here on earth, is simply to please God. His ambition is to please God. And these words are so important for our ever-increasing, self-serving, self-preserving, self-promoting culture, right? How much, if we're honest, how much of our ambitions aren't about pleasing God, but are about pleasing our body? A new kitchen, bigger paycheck, a more exotic holiday, nicer, newer clothes. And none of these things are wrong. I'd love it if everyone here got a new kitchen. That'd be amazing. But do these things drive us, right? Are those the things that we go to bed thinking about, the things that we wake up thinking about? Are they the kind of thing that we make decisions around? Or when we read the words of Paul, do our hearts beat with that same passion? Have we beheld Jesus? 
Have we lingered in his presence to the point where our whole lives have been reevaluated and reorientated to one simple baseline ambition? We are here to please God. Do you feel homesick for the presence of Jesus this morning? Because that's available to us. To come to know him so deeply and intimately that even as the psalm that Sammy read out, a whole being strives and searches and longs to be with the presence of Jesus because it can be so tangible to us. But the truth is, in church, we don't talk too much about working to please God because for years there was this unhelpful overemphasis on works where we basically began thinking that we could somehow earn our salvation. You know, it's unhelpful. But nor do we find truth in the other extreme. Tim Keller, a, um, a famous author, a church leader from New York, puts it really well. And um, I'll try to read this slowly. He says, religion stresses holiness over grace. Okay, Religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. So what is he saying? On the one hand, what Tim Keller defines here as religion is an unhealthy overemphasis on self. The delusion that somehow we could do enough that we might be able to earn our salvation and prove ourselves to God. It's not Christianity. On the other hand, what Tim Keller calls irreligion is actually something closer to fire insurance than it is Christianity, right? It's the hope of salvation, but nothing more. It doesn't change the way we live. It doesn't call us to some higher path. And in doing so, God becomes impersonal and irrelevant. He doesn't have a plan or a purpose or a way for us to live. He stops being father and he becomes a cosmic ATM, right? Retail without relationship. We just get something from him without anything more. But then standing right in between these two unhelpful extremes is Christianity. The truth and the belief that we know there is nothing that we can do to earn his love or his grace. It was freely given and it will always be freely given. But our response to that generosity and sacrifice is that we give God exactly what he gave to us. Everything. Everything. And so in between this religious fervor and this cheap religion, Paul's words cut through and express the beautiful Christian call. I have made it my ambition, my goal in life, to please God. As Christians, our calling is to receive the free gift of grace and then with the freedom that we discover to choose Christ and to choose to live in holiness. But holiness is a word that has been lost in our modern day. I mean, what does holiness look like in a world that feels and seems so unholy? I think in a lot of ways we expect an unholiness in the world and therefore we accept ever-increasing unholiness in ourselves. Let me say that again. I think in a lot of ways we expect an unholiness in the world, and so we slowly begin to accept an unholiness in ourselves. We see how broken the world is, and almost like being anchored to a sinking ship, we give ourselves permission to compromise. 
just a little here, just a little there, until so easily, as the Bible says, we find ourselves entangled in the sin that so easily ensnares us. And the Bible takes sin incredibly seriously because at its root, it robs us of relationship. Right, that's basically the problem with sin. Relationship with one another, relationship with God, just begins to erode and rob us of all those relationships that God intended for us. I've said it before, but sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. (laughs) The best example, the best way that I've had um, sin kind of uh, expressed to me was actually it was when I went on my honeymoon with my wife, and I've shared this story here before. It's not the place you expect to get a deep revelation of sin, but I did. And basically, we, we were lucky enough to go to the Maldives. It was amazing, some generosity of some people just meant that we could go. And it was so good. But obviously, one of the famous things about the Maldives is like the snorkeling and the fish. And so first day, like, I'd never done anything like this. Hannah had, and she was super keen, but I was like really nervous. Obviously, I wasn't letting her see that, because I'm a man, you know. But we walked along this like jetty, and there's like there's a shark, and there's a shark, and there's a massive fish. I don't even know what it is, and everything. You get to this jetty, and there's these there's steps that go down, and I'm like, okay, got my snorkel mask on, got my fins, and I get in the water, and I'm like swimming around, feeling all brave. And after about five minutes, I'm like, okay, it's time for me to get out. There's like so many fish here, and someone had said, all oh, the fish are okay. Be careful of the trigger fish. Because if you swim over its eggs, it will chase you and it will bite you. But he didn't tell me what a trigger fish looked like. Hands up if you know what a trigger fish looks like. Yeah, exactly. Just show me a picture. So I'm like, that looks like, that, that looks like a trigger fish. No, no, wait, that looks like, okay. I have no idea. So I'm in the water. So after five minutes, I'm a bit overwhelmed. There's sharks. There's this deep blue. I decide I'm going to get out. I turn around. At the end of the jetty, someone has taken away the ladder. I'm not joking. There is coral everywhere. You can't get back to the beach because there's boats on one side and razor-sharp coral on the other side. Have you seen Castaway? It's like that. And I'm in the water thinking, I have literally got no way to get out of here. And I'm like panicking, right? And they, it turns out that they've taken away the ladder for maintenance and not told anyone. I was so angry. I was like, maintenance? I'm like stuck. But that is the problem with sin, right? It looks so attractive. All of the nice, colorful fish and you think, I'll just dip a toe in. That'll be all right. I'll just get straight back out. Until you are literally in over your head and thinking, I have no idea how to get out of here. Right? Like That's the problem of sin. And that's why the Bible takes it so seriously. And this has been a hard week for our world and for our country, hasn't it? Maybe now more than ever, when our world is uncertain and grieving, at the terrible events that have happened in Manchester and in Egypt. What the world needs is a people who hunger and thirst after holiness. We so desperately need that. But what does holiness really mean? Well, to someone observing, holiness might sort of simply seem like morality, right? The truth, but... The truth of holiness in the Bible isn't actually about morality. What holiness means is to be set apart, to be separate. Right back from the beginning of the Bible, back in Leviticus, what we see is God calling his people to be a holy people, a set apart, sacred, separate people unto God. In Revelation, we see the angels that cry out without getting any rest, night and day, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I don't know if you know this, but the reason they say it three times is because in the Bible that means perfection. So they're saying, holy, holy, holy. He is perfect. God is perfectly set apart, separate. There is no one and nothing like him. So then when the Lord says to us, be holy as I am holy, what it means is to be set apart unto God. Or in other words, holiness isn't so much about morality as it is about belonging. Holiness isn't so much about morality as it is about belonging. We belong to God. And so as we try and comprehend what it means to live a holy life, we so easily come back to a list. What's in, what's out, how many drinks is acceptable, the youth group trying to work out how far is too far. And we kind of think about holiness as some magic line. You know, this side of it, we're holy. That side of it, we're unholy. Holy good, unholy bad. We act like employees holding on to some sort of contract of right and wrong. But when it comes to God, belonging here isn't a term of ownership or employment. Belonging is a term of affection and relationship. We find belonging in God's love. And like any loving relationship, we wouldn't want to do anything that would hurt or grieve him. And the Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. This passage is totally about holiness in action. What does holiness look like on a day-to-day basis? It looks like kindness and compassion. It looks like throwing off bad language. It looks like getting rid of anger and sprawling and slander and every form of malice. A few weeks ago, um, David Bennett was with us, spoke in the morning and in the evening about his journey of holiness. I'm not sure if he said it, I wasn't here in the morning, but in the evening he said something really interesting. And he said whenever he found himself in sinful situations, he would actually feel the presence of the Holy Spirit leave him. So interesting. And he couldn't bear that, and that was what began his journey of purity and holiness. Bill Johnson, a um, a pastor in America who I spent a year with a few years ago, um, explained this brilliantly to me. And he talked about how if you read Jesus' baptism, the Bible tells us that a dove physically and visibly landed on his shoulder as a sign of the Holy Spirit. Right? So I want you to imagine, picture this. Jesus stood there, he's being baptized, and actual dove, physical dove, lands on him as a sign of the Holy Spirit. So now the Bible promises that we've been given the Holy Spirit. So I want you to imagine for a second a dove landing on your shoulder, like an actual dove landing on your shoulder. Okay, and now imagine the only thing in life you wanted was that dove not to leave. It would affect everything you did, right? The way you moved, the way you spoke, where you went, who you spoke to. Every action would be orientated around making sure this dove didn't leave. That's holiness. Like, that's the best description of holiness. 
the way that I show compassion, the way that I show kindness, the things I choose to say, the things I choose to not say, these things are so important to him. And I've got to pay such close attention to that. The truth is I can be so clumsy with the presence of God sometimes. Just be so clumsy with it. All of my actions, all the way that I do things, I don't want this dove to leave. I don't want to grieve him. The passage in Ephesians talks so much about the power of words. It talks about kindness. And so honestly, like, honestly, I get really sad sometimes when I see some people who would call themselves followers of Jesus, the sort of things that they post on social media, the way that they just so quickly talk about politicians and celebrities, people, people, the way they talk about people, and they think they're gaining something. They think it's so awfully important, but I can't get away from this question. Whatever you're gaining, what are you losing? Right, like, where's the dove? Is he still there? Because it says, be kind, be compassionate, throw away anger, be careful with your words, because all of these things grieve the Holy Spirit. And fueled out of love, the question stops being, how much can I get away with? And starts being, how much can I give? There's, it becomes about devotion, you know. There's this amazing story about David right towards the end of his life. And um, he's become king. Israel is getting established. King David in the Bible, one of the greatest kings in the whole time of Israel. And he's establishing his kingdom. He's journeyed Goliath, his time in the wilderness. That's all happened. And the Philistines get really worried about what's going to happen, about this Israel that is becoming consolidated and powerful. So they decide to try and break apart his kingdom. They do it through invasion. Right, they start invading different parts. And David gets forced with his mighty men, his soldiers that he's journeyed with, he gets forced out into the wilderness. And the Bible says at one point, he was tired, discouraged, and downcast. And he just says, if only I could just get a cup of water from the gate of Bethlehem. Right? I just kind of imagine him sitting there, he's tired, he's angry, and he's just, ah, oh, they forced me out of Bethlehem. If I could just get a cup of water from the gate of Bethlehem. It wasn't a command or even a request. It was just kind of a longing and a distant hope. Well, some of his mighty men overhear this kind of thing that he just proclaims. And it says that they fight their way all the way through the Philistine camps, all the way to Bethlehem. They get to the gate, they get a jug of water, and they carry it all the way back to the wilderness to David. He takes it and he basically says, he pours it out on the ground and he says, I can't stand devotion. I'm not worthy of devotion like this. Right, but that's, that's what holiness is like. It's that level of devotion. Holiness out of obligation isn't sustainable. Our only hope for a lifestyle of holiness is when it is born not out of obligation, but out of devotion. Because the truth is, love is going to cost. There's a second story about David. David is, when you're looking at holiness, he's one of the best people to look at in the Bible because it says he was a man after God's own heart. What an amazing thing to have on your tombstone. You know, people are like, what would you like on your tombstone? A man after God's own heart. A woman after God's own heart. And um, towards the end of his life, he actually tells this census, he sins, and the prophet Gad, Cad, what a name, comes up to him and says, 
David, you've sinned against the Lord. And David's like, okay, what must I do? You know, this is obviously back before Jesus was crucified. This was a time when, for forgiveness, they would have to sacrifice to the Lord, right, before the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he says, what must I do? And Gad says, you must go and sacrifice on this certain piece of land. So David says, okay. So he goes up to the owner, a guy called Aruna, the Jebusite. And he says, I need to, I've sinned against the Lord. I must buy this piece of land. And Aruna, the Jebusite, says, David, you're the king. You can have it for free. And David says this, and I love it. No, I will pay full price. Far be it from me to give God something that costs me nothing. No, I will pay full price. Far be it from me to give God something that costs me nothing. I find this so moving for my life. I find it so challenging because I know that so often I give God my last scraps, my last bit of energy at the end of the day, my last bit of money, if there's any excess after I've done whatever I wanted to do with it. My, uh, my last bit of worship, if I'm in the mood, you know. The scripture that we started with in 2 Corinthians talks about the day of judgment, that we will all stand before God on the day of judgment. Do you know what I get worried about sometimes? I don't want to stand there and think my whole life, I didn't ever give God something that cost me nothing. You know, I don't want to get there and think, God, I never gave you something that cost me. I want to stand there and be like, God, this was my life. This is what it cost because it was such a beautiful sacrifice to you. And sometimes holiness is going to be costly, right? Like I'm not going to stand up here and be like, holiness is always easy. Sometimes it's going to feel like planting your feet and standing against the wind, but that's what makes it so beautiful when we offer it to Jesus. When we shut the laptop, when we look away, when we give with radical generosity, when we choose to eat lunch with the outcast person at school at the expense of our own reputation, when we give up that promotion for the sake of integrity at work, when we refuse to take part in gossip, even if it costs us our friendships, when we move countries and continents and leave families and friends for the sake of the gospel, yes, Jesus would say, there's a cost but far be it from me to give God something that cost me nothing. It's holiness, and it's beautiful. I remember a while ago, several years ago, I was working for an organization, and um, I had an interview for a new job with them, and I was sure that I was going to get it. Like, my manager had said, go for this. I was working part-time. This would have taken me full-time. It would, you know, my whole life would have made more sense had I got this, had been commuting at the time. And um, did the interview, thought that it went pretty well. And then the day came, they called me into the office where I thought they were going to offer me the job. And they were like, we're really sorry. We've given the job to someone else. And I, like, was gutted. I was angry, right? And... Um, my manager was like, I'm really surprised. Tell you what, why don't you take the day, drive home? So I'm driving home, and you know when you, like, your pride's been hurt and you feel a little insecure, you feel a little angry? It's like the easiest time to sin. So I'm driving home, and um, I'm basically coming up with all these stories in my head about how unjust and unfair it was, right? And I just hear God really clearly say, Adam, I want you to pray for the person that got the job. And I'm like, God, you're joking. Like, that's so unfair, right? Don't, didn't you see what happened? Like, they promised me this job, they're giving it to someone else. And he was like, Adam, I want you to pray for the person that got the job. So in that sense of pride, and like, 
cost me. I was like, God, I thank you for whoever got the job. Just pray that you would bless them, Lord. Thank you. It must be amazing to be better than me. <laughs> and it turns out they are amazing because it was my wife. <laughs> right? It looks so funny. And so that day, it turns out it was 24-7. A whole load of stuff happened after that. But, you know, there was a real potential there that I could have spent the two-hour journey home basically raging out at the woman that then become my wife. <laughs> right? Like, it's crazy. But in that moment, I had no idea this was going to happen. Jesus was like, Adam, keep your heart right. Guard your heart above all things. The most important thing here isn't the job. The most important thing here is your heart. Will you swallow your pride? Will you turn away from anger? And will you pray for the person? Will you bless them? And will you trust me with the rest of your life? It's like holiness. It was so good to be at the big thank you a couple of weeks ago. For those of you, if you're new to the church, a big thank you is what we try and do every year, where we just put on a big celebration and we say thank you to all of the people that give so much to make this church community run and happen from, you know, band to tech to kids' work to family outreach, the whole thing. And it was amazing to be there with everyone and just think, these are people who've given something. It's cost them to serve Jesus. Such a privilege to be part of that community. Thank you for everyone who does that. But the nice thing is, is that they do it for Emmaus, but more they do it for Jesus. Right? They've lingered in his presence. Their eyes have feasted on his beauty. And far be it from me to give God something that cost me nothing. Like, they're just doing it. One of the biggest lies that I see of the enemy creeping into the church is that holiness is impossible. Right? see people doing that. I even see kind of people beginning to build theologies that give permission for unholy behaviors. And the truth is, we're never going to be perfect. And that is like really okay. There is so much grace. We will never get to the bottom of it. We will never reach the bottom of grace, right? We are sinking in an ocean of grace. But at the same time, we can't just concede defeat in areas of our life and become comfortable with those areas being unholy. You can't build theologies that give permission for that. Holiness will cost you the hardest thing. It will cost you your selfishness. Right? Holiness is about living. Instead of living it all in here, it's about living it all out there. Right? It's so hard sometimes, because it will cost you your selfishness. But it is a road we can and must walk. And it's amazing what God can do when we choose to walk down that road. Just notice how Jesus came and he turned the whole notion of holiness upside down. Right? At a time where holiness was entirely concerned with the outside. They made laws about how you should look and how you should eat and how you should wash and how you should rest on the Sabbath. But then Jesus comes in and he says, holiness isn't about that. Holiness is about your heart. And he doesn't just say that. Then he goes and spends time eating with tax collectors and spending time with prostitutes. He touches lepers and he heals on the Sabbath. He lives an, an apparently unholy life. But the truth is this, true holiness will always challenge the facade of holiness. True holiness will always challenge the facade of holiness. And the same is true today. As you begin to discover this holiness of heart, it will send you out to some of the least holy places on earth. And some may criticize you, just like with Jesus. They'll criticize the company you keep. 
They'll point fingers at you and call you drunkard and sluggard. But we are called to shine like stars in a broken and corrupt generation. And how powerful it is when someone walks in such holiness of heart that God knows that he can send them anywhere. And instead of them being conformed to the world, they hold the power to transform the world. Everyone higher holds the power to transform the works. You know, the workplaces they, they find themselves in, the school yard they pick their kids up in. We carry the Holy Spirit who transforms places if we make decisions to plant our feet and not be conformed. One of my favorite lines in Pete's vision poem, which kind of became a call to arms to the 24-7 prayer movement, was, a holiness that hurts the eyes. And holiness should do that. It should offend and confuse and befuddle. Your non-Christian colleagues should not understand your generosity. They should be frustrated by your integrity. They should be confused by your passion not to get more, but to give more. You know, the way you don't get a bigger kitchen, but you give more money away. The way that you give up promotion at work to move out, you know, to Hong Kong like Jackie Pullinger. Right, holiness that hurts the eyes. It confuses and frustrates people. But it's beautiful. And so I just want to finish really quickly with... um, some, some tools, just really quickly. So how do we do this? Really practical. We won't spend a lot of time on this. Number one, confession, repentance, and grace. It's not three tools, it's like one. Just sort of stuck them all together. <laughs> so you can never be the recipient of unconditional love until you don't meet the conditions. You know, it's like stunning. It's like we get to experience unconditional love because we don't meet the conditions of that love. But the truth is we don't experience unconditional love until we kind of name something. That's why the Bible talks about confession. So maybe right now you're thinking of something, some area that you'd like to grow in. Just want to invite you to just confess it to the Lord. Repent. It means just to change the way you think, just to turn away from that thing. Because the Holy Spirit will be waiting there with this incredible amount of grace. And grace is how we change. Grace is how we look more like Jesus. So the first thing about becoming holy is just to accept there are areas in all of our lives where we could be more holy. That's okay. We're just journeying towards it, right? Like that's the goal. That's where we're going. Making daily decisions to just confess and repent and receive grace. The second one, what about when you don't feel close to God? Right, I get it, Adam, it's good, it's about devotion, all of that, but sometimes I just don't feel close to God. I tell you what, this is probably the biggest thing when I'm speaking to, to young men or people I'm mentoring, oftentimes what will happen is that they'll slip into some sinful cycle, and if we track back, it's somewhere along the line, they stop spending time with God, they stop feeling his presence. The best solution, the best guide that I've ever had for that, was someone just said, Adam, Fire always falls on sacrifice. Fire always falls on sacrifice. Romans 12 tells us to offer our body as living sacrifices to the Lord. And it does seem that as we offer God something, he comes and meets us in greater measure. When we take one... Have you noticed how, noticed how Jesus, his presence is always with us, but he sort of always exists one step outside of comfortable. Like it's when we choose to wake up early, we encounter him. When we choose to give we encounter him. When we choose to, you know, when's the last time, like the psalm says, the psalm tells us loads of times to dance, right? Dancing for me is a sacrifice. 
right? It's a beautiful sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice, right? I'm like, when's the last? But I tell you what, sometimes Jesus just steps one, he's just one step outside of comfortable. And as we take that step, we encounter him in greater measure. So if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, Adam, I just haven't felt the presence of God in a long time. What's one area that you could take one step just outside of comfortable? Because I promise Jesus will be waiting for you there. And scrolling right back to the beginning, you know, Paul's encouragement to not, not live in the body, you know, not to, to serve and seek our own welfare. Nothing crucifies materialism like radical generosity. You know, fire always falls on sacrifice. What could you give? Third, there's accountability and community. I like grouping them because it means I can say more in less points. You know, this is an amazing church full of amazing people. You know, iron sharpens iron, the Bible tells us. Who could you just say, look, I'm struggling in this area? The devil would always want to isolate you from community. It's the easiest way for him to increase sin cycles in your life. So just fight against that. Plant yourself in community. Sorry, am I holding the mic too low? Um, Plant yourself in community. Who could you surround yourself with and just say, look, would you just keep me accountable with this? I know that I have this weakness in my life. I know when I get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, I can tend to do these things. I'd love to just have you on the end of the phone just to be like... Me and Mike on front row, we have a really strong accountability thing. There are times in my life where I phone him and I'm like, dude, I'm not doing well. And I know that I'm one step away from making some bad decisions. Can we hang out? And he does the same for me. And it's beautiful. It's kept me on that path so many times. And finally, most importantly, the key to growing and learning to grow in holiness is the Holy Spirit. It's literally in his name, the Holy Spirit. It's who he is and what he does. He makes us holy. As we partner with him, his presence in our lives empower us to live up to the holy calling we have as Christians. And through him and by him, we are transformed every day to be more like Christ. Right? We can't become holy by ourselves. But we can become holy with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have welcomed us into your house. Thank you that as we see you, God, we just see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, whenever we turn to you, we never meet a scolding finger. We just meet open arms. And so, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, if there is anyone here Lord, I just pray right now, if you're wanting to challenge anything, God, we, we open up our eyes, open up our ears to you. Lord Jesus, we, just, we ask that you come and speak. Any areas of our life, God, that you're wanting to call us back to holiness, we thank you for your power. God, thank you that holiness leads us to right relationship with you, right relationship to one another. Holy Spirit, we just lean into you. We listen for your voice. Holy Spirit, we don't want to be, we don't want to be a community that just goes through the motions, God. 
We want to have a holiness that hurts the eyes. We want to confuse and irritate, Lord Jesus. We want to challenge people. We want to shine like stars. So God, I just pray you keep calling us back to it. Help us, empower us. Help us be a community that lean on one another, that are honest with one another. But mostly, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and do your work. Thank you that the promise is that you make us look more and more like Jesus every day. And so we welcome that right now. And we say we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. Amen.